Chapter 8 of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Our Fleet. First Introduction to the Will o' the Wisp. Making a Dash for It. A Question of Speed. Under Heavy Fire from Both Quarters. Run Ashore at Full Speed. An Awkward Predicament. All Hands to the Pumps. Resort to Desperate Remedies. A STRUGGLE FOR SIXTY HOURS SAIL OF THE WILL-O'-THE-WISP HER END THE WILD DEREL A RECORD PERFORMANCE LOSS OF THE WILD DEREL AN INCAPABLE CAPTAIN THE STORMY PETREL AND THE WILD ROVER THE REASON FOR MY LEAVING THE BANSHEE WAS THE ARRIVAL AT NASSAU OF A NEW STEAMER WHICH MY FIRM HAD SENT OUT TO ME. THIS WAS THE WILL-O'-THE-WISP and great things were expected from her. She was built on the Clyde, was a much larger and faster boat than the Banshee, but shamefully put together, and most fragile. My first introduction to her was seeing her appear off Nassau, and receiving a message by the pilot boat from Capper, the captain, to say that the vessel was leaking badly, and he dare not stop his engines, as they had to be kept going in order to work the pumps. We brought her into the harbour, and having beached her and afterwards made all necessary repairs on the slipway, I decided to take a trip in her. As soon as the nights were sufficiently dark, we made a start for Wilmington, unfortunately meeting very bad weather and strong headwinds which delayed us. The result was that instead of making out the blockading fleet about midnight, as we had intended, when dawn was breaking there were still no signs of them. Capper, the chief engineer and I then held a hurried consultation as to what we had better do. Capper was for going to sea again, and, if necessary, returning to Nassau. The weather was still threatening, our coal supply running short, and with a leaky ship underneath us, the engineer and I decided that the lesser risk would be to make a dash for it. All right, said Capper, we'll go on, but you'll get damned well peppered. We steamed cautiously on, making as little smoke as possible, whilst I went to the masthead to take a look round. No land was in sight, but I could make out in the dull morning light the heavy spars of the blockading flagship right ahead of us, and soon after several other masts became visible on each side of her. Picking out what appeared to me to be the widest space between these, I signalled to the deck how to steer, and we went steadily on determined, when we were found we were perceived, to make a rush for it. And no doubt our very audacity helped us through, as for some time they took no notice, and evidently thinking we were one of their own chasers returning from sea to take up a station for the day. At last, to my great relief, I saw Fort Fisher just appearing above the horizon, although we knew that the perilous passage between these blockaders must be made before we could come under the friendly protection of its guns. Suddenly we became aware that our enemy had found us out. We saw two cruisers steaming towards one another from either side of us, so as to intercept us at a point before we could get on the land side of them. It now became simply a question of speed and immunity from being sunk by shot. Our little vessel quivered again under the tremendous pressure with which she was being driven through the water. An exciting time followed. As we and our two enemies, rapidly converging upon one point, others in the distance also hurrying up to assist them. We were now near enough to be within range, and the cruiser on our port side opened fire. His first shot carried away our flagstaff aft, on which our ensign had just been hoisted. 
His second tore through our forehold, bulging out a plate on the opposite side. Bedding and blankets to stop the leak were at once requisitioned, and we steamed on full speed under a heavy fire from both quarters. Suddenly puffs of smoke from the fort showed us that Colonel Lamb, the commandant, was aware of what was going on and was firing to protect us, a welcome proof that we were drawing within range of his guns and on the landward side of our pursuers, who, after giving us a few more parting shots, hauled off and steamed away from within reach of the shells which we were rejoiced to see falling thickly around them. We had passed through a most thrilling experience. At one time the cruiser on our port side was only a hundred yards, with her consort a hundred and fifty away from us on the starboard, and it seemed a miracle that their double fire had not completely sunk us. It certainly required all one's nerve to stand upon the paddle-box, looking without flinching almost into the muzzles of the guns, which were firing at us, and proud we were of our crew, not a man of whom showed the white feather. Our pilot, who showed no lack of courage at the time, became, however, terribly excited as we neared the bar, and whether it was that the ship steered badly, owing to being submerged forward, or from some mistake, he ran her ashore whilst going at full speed. The result was a most frightful shaking, which of course materially increased the leaks, and we feared she would become a total wreck. Fortunately the tide was rising, and through lightening her by throwing some of the cargo overboard, we succeeded in getting her off and steamed up the river to Wilmington, where we placed her on the mud. After repairing the shot-holes and other damage, we were under the impression that no further harm from running ashore had come to her, as all leaks were apparently stopped, and the ship was quite tight. The result proved us to be sadly wrong on this point. After loading our usual cargo, we started down the river all right, and waited for nightfall in order to cross the bar and run through the fleet. No sooner had we crossed it, and found ourselves surrounded by cruisers, than the chief engineer rushed onto the bridge, saying the water was already over the stoke-hole plates, and he feared that the ship was sinking. At the same moment a quantity of firewood which was stowed round one of the funnels, and which was intended to eke out our somewhat scanty coal supply, caught fire, and flames burst out. Well, this placed us in a pretty predicament, as it showed our whereabouts to two cruisers which were following us, one on each quarter. They at once opened a furious cannonade upon us. However, although shells were bursting all around and shot flying over us, all hands worked with a will, and we soon extinguished the flames, which were acting as a treacherous beacon to our foes. Fortunately, the night was intensely dark, and nothing could be seen beyond a radius of uh, thirty or forty yards. So, thanks to this, we were soon enabled, by altering our helm, to give our pursuers the slip, whilst they probably kept on their course. We had still the other enemy to deal with, but our chief engineer and his staff had meanwhile been hard at work, and had turned on the bilge injection and donkey pumps. Still the leak was gaining upon us, and it became evident that the severe shaking which the ship got when run aground had started the plates in her bottom. The mud had been sucked up when she lay in the river at Wilmington, thus temporarily repairing the damage, but when she got into the seaway the action of the water opened them up again. Even the steam-pumps now could not prevent the water from gradually increasing. Four of our eight furnaces were extinguished, and the firemen were working up to their middles in water. It was a critical time when daylight broke, dull and threatening. The captain was at the wheel, and I at the masthead, 
all other hands being employed at the pumps, and even bailing. When, not four miles off, I sighted a cruiser broadside on. She turned round, as if preparing to give chase, and I thought we were done for, as we could not have got more than three or four knots an hour out of our crippled boat. To my great joy, however, I found our alarm was needless, for she evidently had not seen us, and instead of heading, turned her stern toward us, and disappeared into a thick bank of clouds. Still, we were far from being out of danger, as the weather became worse and worse, and the wind increased in force until it was blowing almost a gale. Things began to look as ugly as they could, and even Capper lost hope. I shall never forget the expression on his face as he came up to me and said, in his gruff voice, I say, Mr. Taylor, the beggar's going, the beggar's going, pointing vehemently downwards. What the devil do you mean? I exclaimed. Why, we are going to lose the ship and our lives, too, was the answer. It is not possible for anyone unacquainted with Capper to appreciate this scene. Sturdy, thick-set, nearly as broad as he was long, and with the gruffest manner but kindest heart, although a rough diamond and absolutely without fear. With the exception of steel, he was the best blockade-running captain we had. In order to save the steamer and our lives, we decided that desperate remedies must be resorted to. So, again, the unlucky deck cargo had to be sacrificed. The good effect of this was soon visible. We began to gain on the water, and were able, by degrees, to relight our extinguished fires. But the struggle continued to be a most severe one, for just when we began to obtain a mastery over the water, the donkey engine broke down, and before we could repair it the water increased sensibly, nearly putting out our fires again. So the struggle went on for sixty hours, when we were truly thankful to steam into Nassau Harbor and beach the ship. It was a very narrow escape, for within twenty minutes after stopping her engines, the vessel had sunk to the level of the water. I had the will-o'-the-wisp raised, hauled up on the slip, and repaired at an enormous expense before she was fit again for sea. Subsequently she made several trips, but as I found her a constant source of delay and expenditure, I decided to sell her. After having her cobbled up with plenty of putty and paint, I was fortunate enough to open negotiations with some Jews with a view to her purchase. Having settled all preliminaries, we arranged for a trial trip, and after a very sumptuous lunch, I proceeded to run her over a measured mile for the benefit of the would-be purchasers. I need scarcely mention that we subjected her machinery to the utmost strain, bottling up steam to a pressure of which our present board of trade, with its motherly care for our lives, would express strong disapproval. The log-line was whisked merrily over the stern of the will-o'-the-wisp, with the satisfactory result that she logged seventeen and one-half knots. The Jews were delighted, so was I, and the bargain was clinched. I fear, however, that their joy was short-lived. A few weeks afterwards, when attempting to steam into Galveston, she was run ashore and destroyed by the Federals. When we ran into that port a few months afterwards in the second banshee, we saw her old bones on the beach." After this I made a trip in a new boat that had just been sent out to me, the Wild Derail. Oh, what a beauty she was, very strong, a perfect sea-boat, and remarkably well-engined. Our voyage in was somewhat exciting, as about three o'clock in the afternoon, while making for the Fort Caswell entrance, not Fort Fisher, we were sighted by a Federal cruiser, who immediately gave chase. We soon found, however, that we had the heels of our friend. 
but it left us the alternative of going out to sea or being chased straight into the jaws of the blockaders off the bar before darkness came on under these circumstances which course to take was a delicate point to decide but we solved the problem by slowing down just sufficiently to keep a few miles ahead of our chaser hoping that darkness would come on before we made the fleet or they discovered us just as twilight was drawing in we made them out cautiously we crept on feeling certain that our friend astern was rapidly closing up on us every moment we expected to hear shot whistling around us so plainly could we see the sleepy blockaders that it seemed almost impossible we should escape their notice whether they did not expect a runner to make an attempt so early in the evening or whether it was sheer good luck on our part i know not but we ran through the lot without being seen or without having a shot fired at us our anxieties however were not yet over as our pilot a new hand lost his reckoning and put us ashore on the bar fortunately the flood-tide was rising fast and we refloated bumping her over stern first in a most inglorious fashion and anchored off fort caswell before seven p m a record performance soon after anchoring and while enjoying the usual cocktail we saw a great commotion among the blockaders who were throwing up rockets and flashing lights evidently in answers to signals from the cruiser which had so nearly chased us into their midst when we came out we met with equally good luck as the night was pitch dark and the weather very squally no sooner did we clear the bar than we put our helm aport ran down the coast and then stood boldly straight out to sea without interference and it was perhaps as well we had such good fortune as before this i had discovered that our pilot was of a very indifferent caliber and that courage was not our captain's most prominent characteristic the poor wild day rail deserved a better commander and consequently a better fate than befell her she was lost on her second trip entirely through the want of pluck on the part of her captain who ran her ashore some miles to the north of fort fisher as he said in order to avoid capture to my mind a fatal excuse for any blockade-running captain to make for far better to be sunk by shot and escape in the boats if possible i am quite certain that if steele had commanded her on that trip she would never have been put ashore and the chances are she would have come through all right i never forgave myself for not unshipping the captain on my return to nassau my only excuse was that there was no good man available to replace him with and he was a particular protege of my chief's but such considerations should not have weighed and if i had the courage of my convictions it is probable the wild day rail would have proved as successful as any of our steamers about this time i had two other new boats sent out the stormy petrel and the wild rover both good boats very fast and distinct improvements on the banshee number no. one and will-o'-the-wisp the stormy petrel had however very bad luck as after getting safely in and anchoring behind fort fisher she settled as the tide went down on a submerged anchor the fluke of which went through her bottom and despite all effort she became a total wreck this was one of the most serious and unlucky losses i had the wild rover was more successful as she made five round trips on one of which i went in her she survived the war and eventually i sent her to south america where she was sold for a good song end of chapter eight